And let's turn together to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12 this morning. That's on page 771 of your church Bibles. Again, it's also in your, your insert for your convenience. Uh, two more today and next week, uh, two more weeks in Matthew before we take a bit of a break uh, over the summer. We'll be starting a series through uh, the prayers in the Bible. Not, not every single prayer that's in the Bible, but a, a, a good number of them. Uh, and we'll have some, some guests coming to help us through that series. Uh, and then the autumn will start uh, in Genesis and, and look at the early chapters of Genesis before coming back to Matthew uh, the first of next year leading up uh, to, to Easter time. So Matthew 16 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and this is, this is God's word. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. A few years ago, the, the musical film, The Greatest Showman, told the story of the, the life of, of the circus creator, P.T. Barnum. And while the film was, was largely about uh, being your authentic self, which is the message of a lot of films these days, isn't it? Uh, what, what it captured was, was how a man like P.T. Barnum, an, an entertainer, was constantly looking for the next big act. If he found a... Uh, some kind of oddity, then he would next want to find something even odder. If he found something really exciting, then then he'd next want to find something even more exciting to to top that. In a lot of ways, it was a a tribute to the human desire for the unique and the novel. Over the last 15 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we've, we've heard Jesus say and teach things and explain things that people had never heard before. And perhaps had never understood before. We've seen him perform miracles that, that people had never seen done before. We've seen signs from heaven that were, were, were clear indicators of his divinity, like, like at his, his baptism, when the, the voice of God the Father declared his, his love for his son. Yet this morning we find these, these two groups of, of spiritual leaders coming to Jesus and, and asking for something more. They want a sign. They want a sign from heaven. Something that will prove once and for all who Jesus claims to be. And what Jesus reveals about himself here is that that he isn't the greatest showman. 
He didn't come to, to perform for us, to, to meet the human skeptic's demand for yet another sign of who he is. Because he says, for the hard-hearted, no sign or work would be sufficient. He says there will be a sign. There'll be one more sign, but not the kind that they expect and not the kind that they're demanding. And our passage this morning should actually cause us to, to check our own hearts. What are, we, what are we coming to Jesus expecting or demanding? Do you want to, to come to him and, and sit in judgment of him like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? If so, then you'll, you'll find yourself disappointed and unsatisfied. Jesus says to us that we, we should come to him as we are, bringing what little we have, simply wanting to receive a bit of his goodness and his grace. And there's three things for us to see this morning from this passage. First of all, the, the emptiness of, of sign-seeking. Secondly, that, that Christ's resurrection is the sign. And last, that Jesus is more sufficient, even than our, our perfect theology. So first, let's see the, the emptiness of sign-seeking. We, we have here before us a, a really good example of, of that, that old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's funny what sometimes will bring people together, isn't it? You know, in this country, sometimes Christians and Muslims in, in a secular society like this one will be, will be brought together, together by, by certain moral issues of our day. Political parties will, will sometimes join together in order to, to keep a, a, a particular candidate out of office, kind of like with the, the by-elections recently. Sometimes multiple members of the, the same political party with, with opposing ambitions will, will come together to bring down a party leader in the hope that, that they'll each be the next prime minister. That, that happened somewhere recently, I think. Couldn't have been here. Probably some less stable country, right? Yeah, too soon, right? Too soon, sorry. But Jesus was, was the unifying factor for these, these two opposite religious groups of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, we've talked about these two groups uh, quite a bit the last few weeks, some, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about them more and, and what they believe later. But, but for now, let's just say that, that you wouldn't normally see these two groups coming together. They weren't, they weren't friends. In fact, it was their hatred for Jesus that was so strong that it caused them to lay aside their hatred for one another and to work together to, to try and discredit him and to find an excuse to, to put him to death. So they come to Jesus and they ask for him to, to show them a sign from heaven. Verse 1. I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago in another uh, section of Matthew's Gospel. But what they're asking for when they ask for a sign from heaven was actually different from, from a mere miracle. They're not, they're not just asking for a miracle. There are loads of people who were, were doing miracles in Jesus' day, or at least claiming to do them. It's, it's perhaps questionable in some cases as to where the, the power and the authority for these miracles came from. But there are others who could do miracles. We actually faff about with miracles in our own day, don't we? You know, we, it, it's a very loose term, isn't it? We... Most of us hear people using terms, the term for things that aren't actually miracles, don't we? You know, England chased down 377 runs to beat, to beat India. It was a miracle. No, it was just good batting for a change, wasn't it? Not a miracle at all, just refreshing change. People say things like, the, you know, I, I, the thing I ordered from Amazon 
that I really needed to have before 1 p.m. today arrived at 11 a.m. It was a miracle. Well, no, that's just a really, really efficient delivery system put in place by a billionaire. It's not a miracle. Miracles were actually intended to be a sign of the kingdom of God. And Jesus entrusted uh, actually his power into his disciples and, and, and he sent them out. And they were able to perform miracles. But what the, the disciples never did was say, look at this great power that I have. Look at the things that I can do. They, they would freely acknowledge that the power was from God through Christ and not themselves. And it was always used to, to point people back to Christ as the one who had come from God, not, not themselves. That was the point of the miracles, to reveal the, the authority that was from Christ. But there were others in Jesus' day who would use minor miracles to, to gather a following for themselves. And we see that even, even today sometimes, particularly in, in some churches, but also in, in parts of the world where, where spirituality is, is more respected than it is here. You, you can see uh, miracle workers are, are, are people who would claim miracle workers, who, who carry a, a, a heavier weight in their societies than in our, our own secular society. But the point is this, given all this, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they say, we don't want a miracle. Anyone can do a miracle. What, what we want is a sign from heaven, something directly from God that, that proves who you claim to be, Jesus. We want to know what your status actually is. Kind of like when, when Jesus was baptized, but they all somehow missed that. Or maybe if they were there, they'd forgotten about it and, and, and wanted something else just to be really, really sure. And Jesus responds by telling them two things, doesn't he? First, he tells them that they are hard-hearted idiots. He uses this, this little illustration from ancient meteorology. We've, we've heard the, the nautical version, haven't we? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. That's essentially what Jesus is, it says, isn't it? And the point that he's making is that, that even in ancient times, the average person could understand the weather just by, by looking at, at the sky and at the simple facts that they find there. The world was created and, and designed in such a way as to be reliably understood. And that, that being the case, then when people see the, the signs of the kingdom, the, the extraordinary things that, that Jesus has been doing, when they, they see the signs of the kingdom of God coming, a person of, of average intellect should have been able to understand exactly who Jesus was. That's what, he, that's what he's claiming here. Jesus tells these two groups of, of religious leaders that they, they see what they want to see and they're, they're blind to what they wish to be blind to. They can understand the weather by, by looking at the sky, but they, they can't interpret the times. They can't see the coming of the kingdom of God by looking at what Jesus has done. This is quite a bold approach, isn't it? It's a bold way of handling these men. But then he, he presses it even further. Jesus' second argument is that the reason they don't recognize him is because they're unfaithful. And that's why they ask for an additional sign. What Jesus literally says here is that these men are, are spiritually like a, a vicious, adulterous, marriage-vow-breaking person who lusts for a sign. I want to be careful not to, to be too explicit with this, but, but I, I hope you can understand the strength of what Jesus is saying to these men. He's saying that 
that, that these men think they're the, the people of God. And yet they, they crave a sign like an adulterer craves his next mistress. Jesus says they're like a serially unfaithful spouse and now they're, they're slapping the Son of God, the one that they're meant to, sh- to show fidelity to in the face by demanding another sign. Jesus is actually quite gracious here though, isn't he? Because he says there, there will be a sign. And not only these, these uh, one, one, uh, just one more sign. And he says that these, these religious leaders as well as you and I need to recognize this sign for what it is. Jesus says that, that his resurrection is the sign. And that's our, our second point this morning. That Christ's resurrection is the sign. This is one of those great examples of the, the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament. What was the sign of Jonah? You all remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by, by a great fish. And he was in the belly of the fish as good as dead for three days before he spat up onto the shore. And Jesus says Jonah is like Christ and that Christ will be in, in the belly of death for three days before he rises again. What, what sign could be more clearly from heaven than that? What else, what else could Jesus possibly do to prove whether to these Pharisees and Sadducees or to you and I who he is? That, in fact, is the, the whole point that Jesus is making here, isn't it? He's not the, he's not the greatest showman. He doesn't just do signs on demand to to gratify our curiosity because he has nothing else to prove. He has nothing else to prove to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He he says, you want a sign? Then just wait. It's coming. Just wait. To you and I, he says, you want a sign? Then then look at the tomb. Is the tomb still empty? And if you need more than that, if you need more than the resurrection, then you have greater problems than simple unbelief. Jesus says, if you need more than that, then your heart is wicked and adulterous and you're suppressing the truth of who he is, the promised Messiah. And we do this all the time, don't we? We do it behind the the veneer of being skeptics and truth seekers. We're too smart to be taken in by all the naive folks blindly following some old book. And some of you may, may be asking, is, is Jesus saying we should, we should just be ignorant? Does he want us to, to ignore things like, like science or, or the wisdom of philosophy? And, and Jesus isn't saying that at all, is he? He uses this illustration from nature, doesn't he? But what Jesus is saying is that what good are, are science and, and philosophy and these, these other things if they don't cause us, if, if they, they simply cause us to ignore the truth? That's right in front of our faces. He says, don't let our, our own perceived wisdom distract us from what's an absolute and ultimate good. His person and his work. You see, for example, our, our science can't explain love, can it? And if it, it tries, it says that, that love is merely the, the firing of, of synapses in the brain or the, the release of endorphins. That's how science would, would explain love, wouldn't it? There's no beauty there. There's no true love there. Science basically says that, that, that the, the person you love is, is just a, a delusion, that they're, they're any different from, from some other person. Philosophy's historically been 
had the same problems. It's, it's pointed us simply to living for, for ourselves and for the now. But what we see in Christ is the, the fullness of God incarnate. We know real love and we know real beauty because the God who made us entered into our world to, to pay for our sin and his death and to make us alive in him and the great sign of his divinity, his resurrection from the dead. What we need to understand, folks, this morning is that the, the troubling truth of the gospel is that Jesus says we are, are truth-seeking and skepticizing ourselves straight to hell. We say that, that, that he says that when, when we demand more of him than the, the resurrection or claim we just know better than the word of God, then we're breaking our bond to God like a serial adulterer breaking his marriage vows. And the calling of God's people is to, to give up seeking signs and to rest in the sufficiency of the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. Because when we, we pledge our fidelity to him, like a wife to her husband, then what, what happens to Jesus happens to us. That's, that's the, the truth of marriage, isn't it? If your spouse suffers, you suffer. If your spouse is happy, then more often than not, you're happy. If your spouse gets rich, then guess what? You're rich. My spouse gets rich, I'm a kept man. It's going to be great. If your spouse is poor, then, then you're poor as well. That's why you know, Connor and Karis this week are, are going to take vows along those lines, aren't they? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. People of Christ is risen. Then what, what Jesus tells us is we're going to rise with him. What happens to Jesus happens to us. So let me ask you then, what, what do you want to see from Jesus before you believe? What does he have to prove to you? If, if your answer is anything at all, that I'm sorry, he's not the greatest showman. He's given you the, the resurrection, and if, if you need more than that, then be very, very careful. Because the, the next sign from heaven is going to be Jesus' return in glory. And by then it's too late. And the time is short. Now our third point this morning is... is, is Sounds a bit more convoluted. I didn't come up with a great, a great sort of attack for this one. But, but Jesus is more sufficient than our perfect theology. Jesus is more sufficient than our perfect theology. Jesus and the disciples leave the Pharisees and Sadducees behind. Uh, they, they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're, they're walking along. And, and you know, they've, they've got different things on their minds, don't they? You know, the, the disciples are worried about the fact that they'd forgotten to bring bread. And that's, that's kind of an important thing, right? But Jesus is still thinking about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the, the two things come together and dovetail. You, you know that Jesus knows they're thinking about the bread. And so what does Jesus say? He, he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the leaven, of course, is, is what we use in baking, isn't it? It's, the, it's when you put the yeast in the bread. And it spreads throughout the, the whole uh, lump of dough. And it causes the bread to rise. And Jesus is telling the disciples that, 
that the Pharisees and Sadducees, that their approach to religion and philosophy is destructive. And if you let even just a, a little bit of it in, just like letting a, just a tiny bit of yeast into the loaf, then, then it's going to be destructive to the whole church. It's going to be destructive to, to the, the people of God to let the, the religion and philosophy of the Pharisees and Sadducees into, the, into this church. This is a good time to talk about what the, the Pharisees and Sadducees believed, what they were all about. They, they sought theological perfection, these two groups, but they did it at, at kind of polar opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees are, are what we would call today the religious right. They were the legalists. A, a legalist looks at God's word as simply a, a, a set of rules that you have to follow. And you have to keep these rules perfectly. So how do you do that? Well, you, you create more rules. Rules that keep you uh, and, and hold you back from, from breaking the first set of rules. And this is where the, the complaint from a, a few weeks ago from the Pharisees comes into play. They had, they had created all of these new rules that over the years had become traditions. And you'll remember a few weeks ago, they, they came to Jesus complaining that his disciples were, were breaking these traditions, these human-made rules. They were offended by that. And the reason why Phariseeism or, or legalism is so destructive to the church is not only because it's, it's oppressive, it's not only because you know, they, it creates all these extra rules that you, you have to follow and, and you just don't like it. But more so than that is that if you, if you embrace legalism, then it keeps you from coming to Jesus. Because we, we start to think that, that either we're, we're pure enough without him to be presentable to God, or we think that we need to get ourselves right before we can come to God. Either way, it's, a, it's, it's man-centered and it's destructive to our souls. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they, were, they would be what, what we consider the religious left. They, they were the ones who, who didn't take God's word literally. They, they would want to explain away whole sections of it. So they didn't believe in some things like, like the resurrection of the dead. They would be what we would call today antinomian. They, they, didn't, they didn't believe in keeping the law of God perfectly. And again, this view of, of, of theology or, or, or God's word is, is destructive because it, it keeps us from coming to Jesus. Because it says to us that, that we're all okay. That God isn't, isn't that concerned about our sin. That he knows that we're, we're weak and, and he loves us anyway. And we really don't need a savior. We just need a bit of inspiration to try harder and to be better. But if God is indifferent to sin then what do we need a Savior for? And Jesus gives this very stern warning to his followers, doesn't he? In the end. That even just a little bit of these two theologies will destroy the whole nature of the church. It will spread and the, the loaf will not be what Jesus intended for it to be. And this has to be a massive challenge to us as a, as a church today, folks. Especially as a new church. And you know that I, I love each one of you and so I'll say this as gently as possible. But many of us are, are here this morning because our, our last church wasn't everything that we thought it ought to be. And we're here because we, we do take our, our theology seriously and we do take God's word seriously, but we, 
we're not as a church going to get everything absolutely right. And if we, if we try to do everything, uh, if we try to get, get everything right according to your personal theology, then we're going to get even more wrong if we're really honest. And if you're here for purity and perfection, then you're going to be disappointed. And if we're going to keep calling ourselves Grace Church Hammersmith, then we have to be really patient and really gracious with one another. And we have to do one thing really, really well. And that's point sinners like ourselves to Jesus alone. We have to point people to Christ, the risen Savior, and the perfecter of our faith. And that's what we actually see here as the the solution to our theological perfectionism, isn't it? Look at the disciples. They weren't weren't worried about the the finer points of of the theology of the Pharisees and Sadducees, were they? They were worried about the fact that they'd forgotten to bring bread. They were worried about their insufficiencies. They'd forgotten to bring bread. Their master would go hungry, as would they. And he would be unhappy with them. That's, That's what they were afraid of. But what does Jesus say to them? Notice what Jesus says to them. He reminds them of of when he fed 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. He says, guys, don't don't you remember the maths of grace? Don't you remember the the economy of God's grace? What do a a few lows add up to in the, the hands of Jesus? They add up to a feast. Jesus tells them, you feel insufficient, but that's that's okay, because... Because you're with me. And I'm enough for you. I'm enough for the whole world. You see what, what Jesus does here. You, you have the Pharisees who thought they were sufficient in their good behavior. You had the Sadducees who thought they were sufficient through God's indifference. And then you have the disciples who thought that they were insufficient. And what does Jesus, what does Jesus do? Well, he he frees his people of their theological perfection and calls them to rest in his grace. He says, are you you feeling insufficient? Are you feeling broken? Have you you failed in in even some silly little thing like, like bringing bread? Well, Jesus says his grace is sufficient. Jesus reminds them that what they what they have or what they lack is is immaterial when you're in the presence of your loving Savior. See, Jesus' disciples are are freed from the bondage to the the reigning theological movements of their day. And they're freed to simply follow Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That's the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a few moments, we're going to sing uh, the words, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And that should be, that should be the calling of our hearts. The, the, the joy for us to, to cry out that if all you have is Christ, then the word of God tells us that that's enough. He says there's nothing more you could, you could possibly need than the risen Savior, the, the, the one who, who, who has, has met the requirements of the law for us who's paid the penalty and the cost of our sins and who is our true bread of life. Let us pray.